All right, are we ready to get started? Yeah. Perfect. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Revelation. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We left off having more or less finished uh, the sixth angel pouring out his bowl uh, on the great river Euphrates, if you recall from chapter 16, verse 12. We'll simply read through that part again to lead us up and into the seventh bowl, and we'll talk about some of the major features and themes here as well. So, chapter 16, verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I think we talked last week about Assyria and Babylon as being kings from the east. Uh, so, this, again, symbolic, symbolic, so that God's people are understanding um, that there's going to be warfare against them. Verse 13, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the great dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. The like frogs business uh, is reminiscent of the plagues. And of course, when we think of the, when we think of the seven angels pouring out their bowls, um, we're thinking of the plagues. We talked at length about that last week. The plagues in Exodus precede the Exodus. So that's how we want to take a look at and understand these plagues, these bowls being poured out, is uh, this is the storm before the calm. <laughs> or this is the, all the bad stuff happening before the good stuff begins. And it's, it's why Jesus tells us even when we see all these things happening, all these signs of the end happening, we lift up our heads. Our redemption is drawing near. We're getting out of Egypt. Um, Pharaoh and, and all, the, all the enslavers are about to be destroyed. And so that's the, that's the good news um, with which we need to frame this. So the frogs coming forth from their mouths remind us of this context and this imagery we've seen throughout the seven bowls, the seven censor angels. And of course, here too, you have a, a rehash of the anti-trinity, the dragon who was introduced all the way back in chapter 12, and then the first beast, and where you would expect to see the second beast, now you see the false prophet. And this is a theme that Brighton picks up on that, and, and we'll talk at length as we go into chapter 17, that this third beast, the beast from the sea, who is again emblematic mostly of, uh, in the broadest sense, anti-religion, like religious uh, tyranny <clears throat> and uh, false religion, but in, as, as it narrows down, it becomes increasingly like apostate Christianity, the kingdom of the Antichrist in particular. So you see that even with a designation like the false prophet, whereas, whereas Jesus, particularly in the first century, would have been understood as the prophet or the true prophet. The one, uh, if, if Moses was the prophet, uh, he prophesies of one who is greater than him, calling him the prophet, and that's fulfilled in Jesus. So increasingly, this third beast takes on, uh, takes on an, a specifically antichrist-type form. And this idea of the anti-trinity and the anti-church and the anti-sacrament that we've been talking about now for at least a couple of chapters continues uh, through this and in, well into 17, uh, chapter 17. Okay, and then verse 14, we are told about these frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Again, this is quite analogous to what we saw back in chapter 12, where uh, there is going to be a war in heaven, and 
the dragon and his angels fight against Michael and his angels, and they are kicked out of the heavenly realm at the ascension of Christ. Now, as Christ descends, <laughs> comes back to earth, visibly present, manifest in his glory, there's war here on earth. And so what we're seeing here is the, the preparation for this spiritual warfare and this spiritual battle. We don't know exactly how all this lines up, not even in general, let alone any terms of specific chronology, or even how literal we ought to take, we ought to take this. We know, for example, that we are already engaged in spiritual warfare and spiritual battle now. We know that as the time draws on, that battle is becoming increasingly intense. One need only look back to the 20th century where there were more martyrs, uh, it is said, than in all previous centuries combined. So the warfare is ratcheting up, uh, the drama is increasing, this battle motif is only uh, growing stronger and will unto the end, unto the final return of Christ. And again, this warfare of what is it going to consist? Well, as Revelation will show, it mainly consists of Christ leading his saints into battle, just as Michael led his angels into battle, and Satan, the beast, and here the false prophet, this anti-trinity, are thrown out of the realm of earth. Using the language and imagery of the creed, they've been tossed out of the things invisible, they're going to be tossed out of the things visible. There's nowhere left but the big trash heap of the cosmos, <laughs> uh, Gehenna. Uh, the, 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 burning, the burning dump that is the destination of the anti-Trinity and, and those marked by the anti-Trinity. Okay, so warfare battle motif going on here. And we went back, of course, and looked at uh, how this ties in with an earlier part of Revelation. Jesus interjects. Jesus interjects. I love this. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So this is Jesus warning that he's not going to announce when he comes. That, you know, These signs are all you're going to get, but you're not going to get this kind of thing that every so often you hear a, you hear a so-called prophet actually giving us the day of, of Christ's return. And I, we've already lived through, I think, half a dozen or more of those that even got national attention. Very sad, very sad, because it's, it, I mean, to those who are naive or looking for a reason, it discredits uh, Christianity as a whole, at least, again, in the eyes of some. Not, of course, Christianity proper. So we're not going to know. We're going to see these signs. We're not going to know. And I love this, though. Jesus says, it's going to come. I am coming like a thief. Not announced. No one's going to expect it. And then, blessed is the one who stays awake. This, this language and imagery throughout the preaching of Jesus, throughout the New Testament, is so important. Uh, and, and what it really means is stay, stay conscious, uh, conscious of the fact that Jesus is coming. Stay conscious of the fact that Jesus is coming. Even, even more than we might say, you know, this, this may be my last day on earth. And as, as wise it would be to live each day as if it were our last day on earth. Perhaps even more emphasis, just in terms of quantity, is, uh, is placed by the New Testament on living each day as if this is the day the Lord returns. When he comes, let me be found being about his business doing the things of his kingdom, carrying out my vocation. So this is, uh, this is what it means concretely to stay awake, to stay conscious of him and of his coming. And keeping the garments on, um, that's baptismal. That's baptismal. Remaining in baptismal grace. The opposite is to cast off baptismal grace, cast off the garments and go about naked and be seen exposed. In the context of, the, of all the talk of sexual immorality, that, which is idol, adultery, which is idolatry, that is preceded and that will come after this, that's really the essence and the imagery, that, that we remain in our baptismal grace because 
it's binary. You're either in your baptismal grace, you're clothed, you're in faithfulness to Christ, or you're not. That's it. There's really no middle ground. There's no neutrality. Uh, you're either, you're either uh, clothed or naked with Christ or against Christ. And so here our Lord interjects, you know, right at this very, very intense moment and speaks directly to his people. And again, comforts and encourages us. I am coming. And there's warning there too, to be sure. All right, verse 16, then where we left off last week. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. You can drop down to your study note if you have a Lutheran study Bible and see that that's Armageddon uh, is the uh, Hebrew which means the mountain of Megiddo, Armageddon, Armageddon. That's where we get it. And just to finish the study note, though an important city named Megiddo actually existed, this is a symbolic rather than geographical reference because Megiddo was an important battlefield. It came to be associated with the final great battle between God and the forces of evil. So this is where we get our popular language, Armageddon, and really depicting, again, I think if we see this right, rightly, this is uh, Armageddon, if we're going to use that language, would simply be uh, a reference to the, the final concluding battle of a warfare that has been going on for 2,000 years. It's just the climax and end of that war. That would be Armageddon. Let me read just a, a touch from Brighton here. The enemy hosts are assembled at the place which is called in Hebrew Armageddon. While Armageddon is a geographical place name, John lifts it out of any particular historical context and uses it as a symbol for this last battle before the end. The natural environment surrounding Megiddo offered springs and supplies of fresh water as well as forage and spatial expanse so that armies could sustain themselves and be deployed easily. Dropping down a little further in Brighton, thus Armageddon is used here not as the designation of a particular geographic place, but as a terrifying metaphor of a war that will cover the expanse of the entire earth since the whole human race will be caught up in it. And that really, this, this theme of final and ultimate warfare, in many respects, goes on until the conclusion of Revelation. All right, that is the sixth bowl poured out. Any, any thoughts, any questions, any comments on the sixth bowl before we get into the seventh and final? All right, let's carry on. The seventh and final bowl, with a, with a brief reminder that... These bowls being poured out by the angels are part of the liturgy of heaven. They are part of the divine service of heaven. And so the saints in heaven are not at all alarmed to see these things. You know, while it's true that, I mean, thanks be to God, Grandma, grandma up in heaven is not looking down through the, the glass floor seeing everything you do. Okay? But Grandma up in heaven along with all the other saints, is in general aware of the whole scope and scheme of what's going on and what the Lord is doing. And there's no reason to believe that the saints in heaven aren't around the throne, just as Revelation 7 shows, and seeing this drama play out and unfold in real time, and thus being able to surmise uh, precisely what's going on on earth, not, not down to specific individual detail, uh, but in general and uh, in, in broad and in truth. Okay? Into the seventh bowl then, verse 17 of chapter 16. Is there an ice cream truck out there? <laughs> the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple. Again, we're reminded of these liturgical themes. Came out of the temple from the throne. So this is, this is to be taken as the Father's voice. It is done. Gegonon is the Greek. So not to tell it, Stai. 
and I would argue, I would argue very different. In fact, I'd argue that Tetelestai, we really don't understand as well as we think we do. But here, simply, uh, done. Done. Finished. Verse 18, and there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. Now, all of these are signs and markers of the coming of God. They remind us of Sinai, and it is a picture of God coming in his wrath against evil, which is only terrifying if you're evil. So don't be evil. <laughs> well, what does that actually mean? Be baptized. Confess your sins. In being baptized, you're daily at war with the evil that is within you. Properly speaking, you aren't evil. That's precisely Paul's point in Romans 7. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, this alien thing within me. I'm not evil. I am born of God. This thing within me is evil. This sin is evil. I want it excised and destroyed as badly as God himself does. That's a valid way of speaking. Another valid way of speaking is as we do in the divine service, I, a poor, miserable sinner. We can play with that subject, that I. Who is the I? Is the I me in totality as sinner and saint? That's a valid way of speaking. But it is an equally valid way to simply speak as the I proper is me the saint. There is no other. I am a new creation in the waters of baptism and so are you. To deny that would be to deny the work of the Spirit. To deny that would be to deny what Paul says, that you are a new creation. So we can speak in both ways and be completely biblical, completely accurate. As Lutherans, we probably ought to exercise ourselves in this other way of speaking, in this other Pauline way of speaking. It's not me. It's sin that is within me. That's an alien thing. I hate it as much as God does. When God comes to destroy that sin which is in me, I won't be cowering or worrying. I will be cheering and rejoicing. All right, there is a huge earthquake. And of course, that takes us back, that takes us back to the earthquake of the cross. That's the first place our minds ought to go. The earthquake at the cross. And do you remember what the Gospels record that there's actually a, a miniature resurrection that takes place? The saints come out of the grave. I love it. I love it. God is so patient. I mean, from our perspective, irritatingly so. Right? Way too patient. So patient it's mistaken for indifference. But there are these, even still, there are these times, and you just love it, because it's like God's, God's personality and God's joy just bubbles forth and bursts through for like a split second. I can, I, you can see that at the transfiguration, for example. And even Jesus needing to tell the disciples, don't tell any about, anyone about this until the resurrection. It's like the, the joy and fullness of God just bursts through. Through. And the same thing is true at the crucifixion of Jesus, when God's Son had accomplished that which God had sent him, that for which God had sent him. Such a moment of joy at the defeat of Satan, at the washing away of our sins in the blood of the Lamb, that, that there is this giant earthquake, and it's as if God just cannot stop himself, and a portion of the dead rise already. It's just so great. Death has, death has lost its grip. It's like, it's like the Mike Tyson reigning champion of death got punched in the mouth and was like wobbling and lost grip and a bunch slipped out of his hands already. It's so great. And then, and then so, so that, that earthquake and that bursting forth of the joy of God suddenly um, it's joy and wrath. It's wrath. It's what, what is evil. It's joy. And so this great, this great and final shaking is like an echoing of the cross. It's like a fulfillment of the cross. In the preaching of Jesus, that's so frequently what he does. He takes the destruction of, of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And between that, he puts his cross 
on one, and on the other, he puts his final coming. And all three of these are just images of the same thing, his final victory, his final triumph over, uh, in the language of Revelation, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. All right, so there's this huge earthquake. Verse 19, the great city was split into three parts. Here what's in view is Babylon. Babylon, and that'll become increasingly clear. What is, what is Babylon? Well, in the same way that Megiddo is, is a, it's a real place, but it's drawn up into this larger symbolic reality, the same thing is true for Babylon. And you could say that there's a real place called Babylon, a real city, but it's drawn up into this transcendent reality and this imagery of, of all that is evil. Now, we can't go so far, I, I kind of wish sometimes, we can't go so far as to say that the city as such is evil. Right? That any city, a city, in and of itself is evil. Though that, insert, that certainly seems to be the case often, doesn't it? That, that if, you know, if you sort of, I mean, just take it, just take it like this. Like, if you instantly wiped out the big cities in America, what would be left? Relatively wholesome people. <laughs> yeah, relatively wholesome people. But we have to remember, we have to temper that meditation with, with the idea that uh, the climax of Revelation, at least part and parcel of it, is the city of God. It's the city of God descending. So though we might be tempted to say there's something inherently evil about cities, inherently evil about this hive mentality, well, that might be inherently, <laughs> inherently evil. Uh, we, we can't go so far as to say the city itself is wrong. There is such a thing as the redeemed city. We're going to see that in spades. Okay, but this is, this is Babylon, and in many respects is going to contrast the climax of Revelation, which is the great city that comes down from heaven, holy Jerusalem. Here is the great city on earth and is unholy Babylon. So you can see what John has been doing for chapters and what he's going to continue to do for chapters is he's doing this, he's doing this type anti-type, this thesis antithesis uh, type move. Uh, trinity, unholy trinity, true prophet, false prophet, holy city, unholy city, holy woman, unholy woman, uh, cup of sexual immorality, uh, cup of forgiveness, cup of wrath, cup of New Testament. You see, all the things most foundational to God and his church um, we're seeing going back and forth. So that, what, so that what we're seeing here is in a very real sense, in a very real sense, Satan wants to be God in his own image. And all he can do is ape and copy and pervert that which God himself truly is. So the devil has his own church. The devil has his own anti-baptism, you know, the 666. The devil has his own cup, sexual immorality. The devil has his own trinity, he and the, the two beasts, or he and the beast and the false prophet, etc. Okay, so we're getting the point. All right, so the great city, verse 19, was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe." I mean, again, here we, we needn't necessarily look to a literal fulfillment of these things any more than we need to look for a, a literal physical city named Babylon at the end who fulfills all of these things. Um, but, but what is this? God's, God's wrath is poured out upon the people in this seventh bowl in extraordinary measure. And what is the people's response? Do they finally, at this, the seventh plague, at this, the seventh uh, bowl, do they finally repent? No, they curse God. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, pain is God's megaphone. And so God is, you know, inflicting the world with pain up until this ex these extreme measures. 
trying in whatever way he can to get their attention, and the people simply just curse him for it. You know, trying to stop people from going to hell, and they curse him for it and demand to go to hell. All right. That wraps up the seventh bowl. Before we move on, are there any comments, any questions, any thoughts in regard to to this uh, seventh bowl or really this third set of seven? Yes, sir. Sure. With the other sets of seven, the which were those, the trumpets and the seals, between number six and seven, there was an interlude. Mm-hmm. There's not one here unless it's that very brief statement of Jesus. Right. Is there anything that uh, Brighton says about the fact that it's missing? The only thing that I recall is that, is that that's simply that that's the end. It's because this is the end. So there's no, there's no interlude. I, what, comes, what comes next really takes place of the interlude but we would really probably conceptualize it as the conclusion, lengthy conclusion, um, of Revelation. Yeah, yeah, great, great question. We, we did compare last week, we did compare um, the trumpets. When you look at the trumpets, um, the, the fifth and, uh, yeah, it's the fifth and sixth trumpets, and you compare them with the sixth and seventh bowls, there's quite a lot of similarity there. Um, but right, no, no interludes, so to speak. And that probably because it just wraps up. Yeah. Um, as you, I don't see any other hands. Are there any other hands? Ah, yes. Uh, Pastor, there, there's the section where, where Jesus said, I'm coming like a thief. Mm-hmm. Now, when he said that in, in this passage, he, that in, is sort of suggests that the second coming had not yet ha- has not yet happened. Right in the middle of all this action of Armageddon and all, the second coming has not yet happened. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it kind of goes against this whole late great planet Earth idea that Jesus comes and then there's a tribulation. Mm, yeah. Right. Because here, I gather that the Armageddon and all that is supposed to be in the middle of the tribulation. Here we are, right in the middle of the tribulation, and Jesus is saying, "I'm going to come like a thief in the night." Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's a good point. Yeah, it's a good point. To, um, I, think, I think here, too, his, his comparing himself to a thief is really very narrow. I mean, it just the, the connection there is you don't know when a thief's coming because a thief doesn't tell you. You know, you know, a thief doesn't leave a note on your door and says, I'll be here at 1.30 a.m. Uh, and, that's, and that's precisely his point uh, in, this, in this context is, um, look, I'm coming, and you don't know when. So thus, right, stay awake, keep your garments on, etc. Yeah. yeah, right. There's, I mean, I don't, I don't know. There's so many holes in the late great planet Earth and the left behind and all of the it's other. Super popular. It's yeah, super popular. Yeah, I know. It's a super popular idea. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And I think, you know, I mean, other than just kind of being nonsense and filling Christians' heads with nonsense, which most of it is, most of, most of the eschatology that's taught in evangelical churches these days has its birth in the 19th century, um, and they just don't know better. So, I, I mean, other than it just kind of being like false and nonsensical, it's, in a sense, it's harmless because the end's going to be what it is, right? And even if we as Lutherans have a few details wrong or whatever, it's, or interpretations wrong, it's, it is going to be what it is, um, but I think the main danger in evangelical land is you get like, let's do 352 weeks on the last times. And then it's like, okay, well, uh, did you, in that time, did you manage to preach Christ? The repentance or forgiveness of sins in his name? Did, was that kind of part of it or? Oh, oh it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we know all about that, right? Yeah, I know, I know, that's the... That's the issue. I, and then how do you, how do, you do, I mean, I, I've never, I've got better uses of my time. I'd, I'd frankly rather sit down and have a tea party with my daughter than do this. Uh, and and that's, that's go and, and try to look and listen at how modern evangelical Christians try to read these sections that are so absolutely rich in sacramentology and, and anti-sacramental. I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with all this business about the cup 
and then and then go over to service and you know have your have your oyster crackers and grape juice, and and say it's a symbol and it you know, I don't know. Yeah, there's many things that baffle me about the about the other the other takes on Revelation. I I'm kind of over trying to combat all of that. In my view, let's just enjoy what is and what we have, and other people will be attracted to that. God willing. <laughs> We will spend some time uh, around chapter 20 maybe combating a little of that because the whole idea of uh, millennialism, of which there are these subtypes, pre and post being the primary subtypes of millennialism, that whole idea really is taken from Revelation 20 and one verse. And then other, uh, maybe a couple other, like two other Bible verses are sort of like folded against their obvious meaning to go for this literal uh, millennialistic reading, but the church in large rejects this. As millennialism is kiliism means the same thing, and it, as a Jewish notion, because even even prior to uh, even prior to the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures being written, there's sort of this this Jewish idea that there was going to be a literal physical reign. Um, that the that the restoration of Israel was going to be a literal physical restoration. The Romans were going to be overthrown. And they were going to set up shop for a thousand years. Um, obviously, that's not in keeping with biblical truth. Okay, uh, any other thoughts? So what we, what we are doing as we transition into chapter 17, this is a huge transition, a huge transition. Because in a sense, in a sense, we're, we're at the third of the sets of seven. We did the seven seals. This is, the, this is looking at the revelation proper and the organizational structure. We did the seven seals. We did the seven trumpets. Now we did the seven bowls. And we're done. So this is, from 17 on, is really best understood as the conclusion. Now, if you like, you can say the seven, uh, the seven seals are opened, and then you can say the seven trumpets, and then you have that, that great interregnum, which is Revelation 12 through 14, uh, the woman, the dragon, all of this imagery that we've been dwelling in, and then, um, then you move into the third set of seven. So then you have a fourfold structure. That's fine. It doesn't matter. Um, and, then, and then you get this conclusion. But properly speaking, that is the best way to read uh, 17 all the way through uh, the end. Chapter 17 all the way through uh, Revelation 22, 22, 22. I mean, 21, uh, no, it goes into 22. Because there's like a, there's like a, a tack on, like, a, <laughs> like the book jacket, um, as there is in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes and some other um, that you could argue is sort of like the conclusion's conclusion. But properly understood, uh, 17 through the first half of 22, end of 21, first half of 22. Okay, let's jump into chapter 17, verse 1. We're going to retain much of the same imagery. It morphs somewhat. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, who is seated on many waters. Now, who, who, is see, who else is seated on many waters? Or on the glassy sea? So you can see here an antitype. Now, we're later told that these waters are specifically people, and you can think geographically, too, to some degree about Rome. Um, but, but, at least in passing, you want to note that this is part and parcel of the comparison of the one who is seated upon the glassy sea and then this being, again, an aspect of the anti-trinity. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Okay, so seated on the many waters, this kind of anti-Trinity embodied, is, uh, in many respects, what you could see is the antithesis of the Revelation 12 woman. 
the antithesis of the church. And that, that also is in keeping with uh, the first, forget if it's nine or ten chapters of Proverbs, where you have the wise woman and the prostitute. And the wise and godly woman, the prostitute who seduces and destroys the unwise man. And here then you have that same imagery playing out. We've, we've talked at length, so I'll simply make these remarks in passing, that the sexual immorality, the adultery, is in the Old Testament in the first century very closely connected with idolatry. Um, this kind of adultery is connected with pagan worship and false gods. If you look at the study note on chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Great prostitute, later identified with Babylon. This likely personifies Rome. The original audience would have easily associated this great prostitute with the goddess Roma, whose image could be seen throughout the empire. The prostitute works hard in hand with the twin beasts. Note how this iniquitous woman is the counterpart to the righteous woman described in 12, 1 through 6 and 13 through 17. On many waters literally describes ancient Babylon, which had many canals and the world-famous floating gardens. Later on, however, John identifies these many waters with peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And then over to the next verse, not just royalty, that is the king's, uh, who have committed sexual immorality with her. Not just royalty, but rulers and important people of every kind. And then in regard to the sexual immorality, refers not only to inappropriate sexual behavior, but also to idolatry and hostility to God. The Old Testament prophets frequently compare pagan cities to harlots and identify apostasy with sexual misconduct. You can see the note on Ezekiel 16. And then in regard to the language of being drunk, intoxicated with political power, violence, economic clout, pagan religiosity, etc. Does that sound familiar? Huh. Obsessed and intoxicated with political power, violence, economic clout, pagan religiosity. Yeah, so again, what is, what is Revelation doing for us as Christians? Giving us lenses with which we can see and understand our world and aspects of this reality within our own time and within our own culture. All right, verse 3. And he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness... Now, the he is likely the one of the seven angels, back in verse 1, who had come and said, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Now it is he, this angel, who uh, carries him away in the spirit, which, of course, we've had that refrain before all the way back at the beginning. It's sort of this, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the body or out of the body, I do not know kind of experience into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Now, this description fits the beast from the sea in chapter 13, which um, is here, uh, Rome. So this, you know, when you take the two beasts together, it's the political and the religious tyranny blurring and blending together. Re read a little further, and then I'm going to take you into Brighton, because Brighton has a slightly different take than the study Bible does. I don't think it matters all that much, but I tend to go more toward Brighton. Verse 4, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. 
and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So again, this is the anti-religion power that is uh, over and against the Revelation 12 woman, over and against the saints of Christ. Um, You can see her cup contrasted to the cup of the church. At the end of verse 6, he simply says, John simply says, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Let me, uh, let me take you into Brighton for just a few comments here. Just a few comments. The first thing, this is Brighton, that John sees in his concluding vision of the end of the present world is the judgment and destruction of the two henchmen of the dragon, the beast and the harlot, which together are called Babylon. And then here's how how Brighton takes it. The dragon, Satan, was introduced in chapter 12. His two beasts emerged in chapter 13. The dragon's second beast became the false prophet in chapter 16, verse 13. We just saw that, and we'll see it again in chapter 19, verse 20, and chapter 20, verse 10. The second beast also becomes the harlot in 17.1, 17.5, 17.15, and 16. And then also as we go forward into chapter 19 at verse 2. So Brighton sees the third beast as the one morphing into these various forms. And he sees the beast taking on the form of the false prophet and then the form of uh, the form of um, the harlot. And so then if you have if you have the I mean what is that what does that mean for the section we just read? If you have the harlot riding the beast. And the beast is described as having seven heads and ten horns. That perfectly describes, that perfectly describes the beast from the sea. And so you have, the, you have the second beast riding the first beast. And you have this melding together of political and religious tyranny over and against the church. Which maybe that's as much as we want to say in terms of the concrete nature of this. Um, Maybe, maybe a slightly more meditative point. Throughout all the persecutions of Christians, whether it's in the first century or the 20th century, and you can see this too even in our own time, although in a much milder form, the persecution is always done in the name of righteousness. The Christians are always vilified and demonized and seen as evil. That's the connection between the political and religious uh, beasts, the political uh, and religious image of the harlot riding upon the beast, is it's the melding of these two together to to where government and their sense of morality, their sense of what's right, is precisely the, the spear that's used to skewer Christians. And you can, you can see that. You can see that already even in our age. Again, albeit in a much milder form. Um, people aren't saying, well, well, we're evil and Christians are good, so we've got to get rid of the good. No, they're saying, we're good. We're open-minded. We're tolerant. We're forward-thinking. We've evolved. This is the 21st century. And the Christians are the evil ones, the intolerant ones, the bigots. Uh, the, the Christians are the ones standing in our way. And, and not, to, not to get too far afield or, or too far into the, you know, some sort of 
you know, prognostication. Um, Christians, largely speaking, are nationalistic. Largely speaking, are nationalistic because, because we recognize our vocation as citizens within a given kingdom. And we want the best for that given kingdom, the best for that given nation. And, and that's what we're called to be and called to do. But increasingly, that's particularly the thing that's being vilified. And we're, we're to all join together in this one world order, this one world economy. Many of you have heard about this economic reset and some of the high level uh, economists of the world and think tanks of the world just openly putting this forward. Um, it remains to be seen, but that the pandemic has been used and would continue to be used as the catapult for this great reset and this great inter interdependence of uh, all mankind over the whole face of the globe upon this one government, upon this one mixture of, of governmental power. And of course, that government holds the key to what is considered morality. We'll tell you what's right and wrong. We'll tell you what's safe and not safe. We'll tell you what you can and can't do. It's, it, it is, in my estimation, I mean, a, a perfect image and a global uh, fulfillment of precisely the dynamics we see. Now, whether, whether that comes to pass or not remains to be seen, and um, whether that ha is happening now or is happening in 100 years or is happening in 1,000 years, you know, it all remains to be seen. So granted, it's speculative, but Revelation is, is teaching us to perceive, now in humility, in humility, but to perceive with theological lenses that which is going on around us. So I simply, uh, I simply commend that uh, to your thinking. All right, all right. Um, maybe, just, maybe just a touch more from Brighton. All right, here he is. And th this, would, this would largely be commentary on... largely be commentary on verse 3 and following, where you have the, the woman sitting on a scarlet beast... You can think, too, in terms of the, gosh, there's just so much here. I just don't have time to do it all. Every time I teach Revelation, I want to teach it again because I realize how much I, I missed. <laughs> but but it's, the, it's the dragon. Do you remember what color the dragon is? Red. And here's the scarlet beast. And what's the woman wrapped in? Yeah, purple and scarlet. Verse 4, purple and scarlet. So there's all this imagery of the three being, being one. And there's this, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there again is more like type, anti-type. I mean, though your sins are as scarlet, right? They should be white as snow, made white by the blood, by the scarlet of the lamb. Yeah, it's great stuff. Okay, so Brighton writes, the first beast which has the seven heads and ten horns, represents everything of the human sphere, society, government, economics, that the dragon uses in his warfare against the church. That so-called political beast does not evolve but remains the same. In contrast, the lamb-like beast, which speaks for the dragon, represents every spiritual and religious entity that the dragon deceitfully uses against the true church of Christ. This so-called religious beast evolves and develops until it finally and especially represents false Christianity and the apostate church. Therefore, what this second beast represents changes from all false religions and spirituality in general into the false prophet and the harlot that is, pseudo-Christianity and the false church. So again, um, in the same way that you would kind of say, like, well, the spirit in the church, where the, where the spirit is, there's the church, and where the church is, there's the spirit. So you would say, like, where the, where, where the congregation of the wicked are, where, where 
the great prostitute is, there is the beast. Where the beast is, there's the prostitute. So they're quite analogous. They're quite analogous. And thus you see her enthroned on the waters, and thus you see her riding on this other beast. Yeah, this is, this is an interesting take, too. This will power up your Lutheranism. <laughs> it is therefore quite understandable, Brighton writes, that a harlot now becomes a visual representation of the false people of God. That is, those who outwardly appear or claim to be part of the Christian church, but are inwardly and spiritually apostate. You, have, you, you may have seen this. You may have seen this already. That some of the, when you, when you try to stand against the, the tyranny and wickedness of the evil age, some of the most vicious, some of the most vociferous, some, the, the first ones all over your throat and all over your neck are who? Christians. Gosh, it's like God knew what he was talking about when he, when he wrote this. Brighton continues, just a little bit further. I hope I'm not boring you. I think this is great stuff. Hopefully you do too. By means of the harlot, the pseudo-church is presented as an attractive woman. She offsets and counters the woman of Revelation 12 who represents the true people of God, also called the bride of the lamb in chapter 19, verse 7. While the woman who bore the child, that is Christ, is hunted down by the dragon, and as a result, suffers all manner of persecution and tribulations in the world. In contrast, the harlot is honored and courted by the world. Both women are set forth as representatives of the Church of Christ, the harlot falsely, so the persecuted woman truly so. Until God's judgment at the end, the pseudo-church which appears to be beautiful and attractive, the harlot, will be accepted and honored by the world, for she flatters and encourages the lifestyle of the ungodly. Ah! Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, as, if, it's as if Jesus says that, said that in the end of all things, lawlessness was going to be the problem. Not legalism as such. That's a problem. Lawlessness. That's the problem. And a Christianity that puts forward lawlessness in the name of Christ. All right, well, a little further in the... T- oh, no, we can't go. Sorry. <laughs> By this time, Monday. <laughs> a little further in the text. All right, that's it for today. The Lord be with you. Amen.